You're listening to Flipping the Channel, conversations with experts and executives from the electronics industry. In each episode, we attempt to understand and unravel some of the business and technical challenges brought on by component obsolescence. Here's your host, Bill Bradford, president of Flip Electronics. Welcome to this episode of Flipping the Channel, and I'm very pleased to have as our guest, the president and CEO of the Electronic Component Industry Association, David Loftus. David, coming to us from the friendly skies, it looks like. Welcome, Dave. <laughs> hey, Bill. Great to be here. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, so we, we've we've had some similar career paths. Uh, you spent a lot of, lot of years in the semiconductor business. Why don't you just recap for our listeners kind of your, your career path? Sure. Um, so like you said, we've had a lot of parallel paths along the way. I uh, started my career as an electrical engineer, did a few years of design, but I got into the semiconductor business in the early 90s, started with a field apps engineer with Xilinx, um, rose up through the sales management ranks, had an opportunity to run Asia for them for uh, for a few years back in the early 2000s, uh, came back to Silicon Valley and ran a couple of business units. Um, and then I stepped out to go to Intersil in 2008. So I went from the digital world to the uh, broadline analog world. And uh, that was quite the, quite the switch. I ran worldwide sales and marketing for them, uh, jumped through uh, Cypress, and then I finished up my semiconductor career running sales and marketing for Maxim Integrated, another broadline analog company. So I stepped out of the semiconductor business uh, in, in late 2019 and had intended really to focus on uh, consulting and board work. I had moved back to Atlanta uh, with my family. My That's where we were originally from years ago. We crossed paths uh, there in mm-hmm. our backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and, and my wife and kids had wanted to come back to Atlanta. So that was part of the reason of stepping away from Silicon Valley. And then uh, this bright gentleman named Bill Bradford had talked me into this current role with uh, ECIA. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm just thrilled that we had that conversation. Um, you know, ECIA, we could talk about that here in just a second. But, you know, it just it, the, the, the role that I've... Uh, incidentally learned mostly over Zoom calls like this uh, is, is a lot of fun. Um, I, I love the semiconductor business and I was tremendously fortunate with the career that I had. At the same time, uh, ECIA is a little bit different in the way that uh, really just trying to get so many members to be able to work together on a lot of the problems that chased me through 30 years of my career in uh, the semiconductor world. And so for me, it's really a, a fantastic opportunity to be able to stay in touch with uh, the business and a lot of people that uh, that 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 I, I like and admire. And it's also a way for me to sort of give back to the business that has been so good to me for 30 years. So having having a lot of fun with it. Good. Well, for those that may not be very familiar with the ECA, why don't you just briefly tell what the primary focus and charter of that organization is? Sure. So ECIA stands for the Electronic Components Industry Association. Uh, ECIA, as a name, has only been around for about 10 years, but it's uh, 
uh, parent companies actually uh, trace their roots back almost 100 years to the early days of radio. Uh, ECIA was formed by the merger of NIDA, the National Electronics Distribution Association, and ECA, the Electronic Components Association, in 2011. And um, the interesting thing about our our membership is uh, ECA was probably a little more uh, focused with uh, IP&E, electronic components manufacturers, interconnect, passive, and electromechanical, had some semiconductor members on both the NIDA side and the ECAA side. And over the last 10 years, uh, through your efforts, and now I'm trying to continue the efforts, we're trying to uh, continue to grow the semiconductor memberships. We've got a lot of marquee names, analog devices on Semi, Infineon, uh, Renesas, a lot of really good um, uh, semiconductor guys, but we are missing uh, some of the big guys and we're going to continue to try to pursue to bring uh, them into the ECIA fold. And, you know, as a, a, a many trade organizations are based in DC and they're focused on public policy initiatives like uh, National Association of Manufacturers, NAM, and SIA, which is uh, probably resonates with a lot of your listeners, the Semiconductor Industry Association. They work on on public policy initiatives like immigration, environment, tax reform, trade policy, uh, IP protection, pre-competitive investment in in research. Uh, But uh, ECIA, what really resonated with me in our initial conversation about it was that it's really focused on practical everyday uh, issues of trying to make our business more efficient and effective. A uh, big project we're working on right now is around uh, design registration. Uh, we uh, are working uh, with um, uh, blunting counterfeits. I mean, really, I, I think one of the critical things about ECIA is that we stand for the authorized channel, really trying to ensure that people, <clears throat> that customers of the electronic components industry are buying uh, legitimate authorized product rather than uh, off the gray market or counterfeits and so forth. And so we we sponsor a, a really neat website called trustedparts.com. This is a brainchild of our distributor members a number of years ago. And the it's a it's a inventory site that uh, customers of electronic components can hit and they are 100% assured that it is full authorized product through authorized channels that uh, convey the full uh, warranty of the original manufacturer. And so that's uh, being uh, really successful. The other things, we sponsor several industry events. Uh, We're a major sponsor of EDS, which we're very happy to say is going to come back in uh, August of this year. Uh, We have our annual executive conference and uh, two other things that we do is we do a lot of original market research. Um, under Bill's leadership, we brought in a fantastic chief analyst, Dale Ford, who has a lot of history with uh, DataQuest. And uh, he was one of the original guys in iSupply. And I went into IHS with a, with a merge there. And we also uh, have a, a lot of work in standards, mostly around IP&E and uh, the you know, non-semiconductor. Semiconductor standards are mostly driven by JDIC. Uh, but we actually do a lot of lot of standards work as well. So anyway, we do a lot of different things for our members, a lot of great services. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful way for 
industry leaders to be able to network and work together cooperatively on uh, tough issues that face our industry. Great. Well, between researching this market and the focus on the supply chain and the whole channel, uh, certainly a lot of you, you can't pick up the news newspaper without reading about supply chain issues in the semiconductor business. How would you kind yeah. of characterize the market and, and the supply chain today? Well, we're certainly, yeah, that great question. I mean, we're certainly seeing continued tightness. Uh, lead times are continuing to extend in certain things, especially uh, in things like micros and, uh, and, and analog and discretes and so forth. We're seeing manufacturers, um, you know, do, reasonably broad uh, price increases and the inflation is hitting the uh, semiconductor business and other other parts of our membership, just like uh, a lot of other parts of the economy right now, when we're coming out of the pandemic, there's just tremendous demand. And uh, sometimes terms are um, a little bit tougher. A lot of uh, new orders being placed on the books are, are being required to be NCNR so that uh, cost, or so that uh, manufacturers really can rely upon the backlog that is placed. We want to make sure that there's uh, minimal double ordering and, uh, and any kind of speculative buys that are going on. So they're, they're requiring uh, people to put NCNR orders in place. And you know the question is how long is this going to last, and what do what what should the industry do about it? And overall, I'm I'm sort of uh, I, I'm I'm a little bit bipolar on this. I mean, in some ways, I think that we will. It, this is not going to be a multi-year kind of shortage. I think that really it's been the perfect storm with the fact that the semiconductor business, especially, was in a downturn that had started back in, um, you know, late uh, 2018, maybe maybe mid to, to late 2018. Um, semiconductor market has always gone through up and down cycles every four to five years. And we were just climbing out of that at the end of uh, 2019, beginning of 2020, when the pandemic hit and everybody slams on the brakes. And that's sort of an analogy that I like to use. This is a situation, it's like you're on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles and somebody taps on the brakes and everybody, all the cars pile up behind it. And then an hour later, there's still a, a traffic jam there because, uh, and there's no, no reason for it. It's just that happens that, that everybody bunched up and that's what's happening right now. Everybody is, is bunched up right now trying to get, their uh, production volumes back up for a uh, for the economy that's being reopened around the world, and everyone had bled their inventories significantly uh, in the downturn, but then also bled them even more significantly in uh, during the pandemic at the beginning of the pandemic before they realized that hey, the world's not falling apart, and uh, we there there really is demand out there, and this and and the other. Uh, aspect of this is you're seeing that just trillions of dollars being pumped into economies that have somewhat artificially inflated the uh, the, the the short-term demand. And you hear Pat Gelsinger from, from Intel, a really smart guy, and he says that this is going to go on for another couple of years. I don't know, maybe maybe for a few limited pieces of the the, the market, but I, I do think that once stimulus 
dries up a little bit that, um, uh, you know, the economies are going to come back to earth and uh, you're going to see more of a steady state environment. The other analogy that I sort of use is, uh, is toilet paper. It, it, you know, everybody's talking about adding capacity. The uh, U.S. wants to throw 50 to $100 billion at it. Uh, Europe's thrown tens of billions of dollars. TSMC themselves are saying, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in, in added capacity. Um, I'm afraid of the industry getting over capacity and building for this really uh, tremendously unique inflection point that we're in right now. If we brought on several hundred billion dollars worth of capacity a couple of years from now, just as the markets are coming back to normal, I, I, I would be afraid of, of, of overcapacity in the market, uh, prices crashing before in our industry. <laughs> well, not to the scale that, 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 that yeah. they're talking about now. Right. Uh, so I, I'm all for um, having supply chain security for uh, the U.S. and other people ought to be thinking about their supply chain security. Uh, at the same time, you just got to think about what, h- how much capacity can be brought online and be able to be utilized at a high enough level that it's profitable to be able to run those fabs. So I, I, I do, I am somewhat concerned about that longer term. Mm-hmm. So you, a couple months ago, you penned an op-ed that the Wall Street Journal picked up and kind of pointed the finger a little bit at the auto industry and how some of this is self-inflicted by kind of years of how, how they've handled the supply chain from a customer perspective. You want to just kind of expound on your thoughts there a little bit? Sure. Um, and I, I don't want to uh, badmouth any of the customers of the electronic components industry in any way, but I, I, I uh, did go out and make some uh, public statements in a lot of different uh, that got picked up around the world, really, with Economic Times of India and some others as well. And the fact that a lot of people created some of their own problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, automotive, it's, it, 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 they obviously get a justifiable amount of attention because it employs so many people. It's so, so big a part of the economy. And when they uh, started putting orders on the books in late 2020 and early 2021 and found that lead times had stretched tremendously, uh, they ended up having to shut uh, production lines down. And that is, and, and idling tens of thousands of workers. And obviously that's a very painful thing for uh, those companies, but it's also a painful thing for the world economies that uh, that 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 support and that they support and and lose uh, lose tax revenue and so forth. And so, you know, the, the the point that I was making in a number of these articles was really that, in some ways, they shot themselves in the foot. Um, there are certain businesses like uh, smartphones that run in very high volume on a limited number of components, and those guys uh, rightfully buy most of their product direct from manufacturers. Um, automotive manufacturers have been known for the last several decades of running very lean inventories, just-in-time replenishment models, uh, VMI, vendor-managed inventory, and so forth. But one thing that they did uh, really over the last 10 to 15 years is they really issued the channel. They, they just... 
uh, thought that uh, they needed to be direct uh, customers of the semiconductor manufacturers, even though automotive, for the most part, is more of a high mix, lower volume type of business than, uh, than say, smartphone manufacturers. Uh, most manufacturers, not all, but most manufacturers would like automotive uh, customers, and this is you know mostly the tier ones and, and the suppliers to the OEMs, like them to go through the channel just because of that mix and because of um, uh, the their 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 ordering processes plus the value added services that they really demand. But but really, starting about ten or fifteen years ago, a lot of these um, procurement arms in the automotive suppliers started putting guns to the heads of of VPs uh, of worldwide sales. You and I have have faced this. Uh, in common that, you know, you got a chief purchasing officer that basically says you will do business with me direct, or I will go to your comp- competition and I won't do business with you. So it's, and, and what happens in that is um, first off, the, the, the automotive guys were, were late to the party in uh, 2020. Certainly when the pandemic um, began and Millions and millions of people have to work remotely and, you know, hundreds of millions of kids are having to um, go to remote classrooms. The PC guys, the cell phone guys, the tablet guys, the uh, all of the data center guys started to put orders on the books and lead time started to stretch. And in late 2020, you had uh, automotive guys that were still coming to semiconductor executives and saying, Hey, cancel my orders, and uh, and and by the way, you you need to take you will take these products back from me, and uh, and, and they're dealing with them on a direct basis. And the the point in this set of articles is just that there is a a tremendous value in the channel. There's a reason that uh, semiconductor manufacturers and other electronic component manufacturers support the channel as because they are really what I call the impedance match between a manufacturer that wants to generate very large volumes and ship very large quantities on a single single line item versus distributors that are incredibly good at aggregating orders over many customers. They're very good at working with customers on advanced forecasts, buffering inventory, in plenty of time uh, to to be able to handle these kind of supply chain fluctuations. And uh, so the point was really that that, um, for security of the supply chain, people really should um, listen to uh, the the recommendations of manufacturers about how they do business with them. And uh, a lot of them should really be, um, be supporting the channel, at least for a, a reasonable percentage of their business, and utilize the value-added services uh, that they uh, that they offer. This concludes part one of this interview. David had a wealth of information to share, and we decided to split this episode into two segments. Please stay tuned for part two of this episode, where we will discuss the challenges of end-of-life products in the supply chain. You've been listening to Flipping the Channel. This podcast is brought to you by Flip Electronics. 
where we're making obsolescence obsolete. Visit www.flipelectronics.com for your authorized, hard-to-find, end-of-life electronic component requirements.